Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Lisa Lewis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nick. It is a delight to be here. So let's start off by, um, I want to have you talk a little bit about your um, background, um, in particular your professional background, because it's it's varied and very interesting, um, but then also how you kind of got interested in the topic of career transitions generally. So could you talk a little bit about your uh, origin story, so to speak? <laughs> I am happy to, and it, it feels fun to get to share this story with you because in a different version of my life, I could have ended up being you and taking the pathway down the the clinical psychology route. So it's exciting just to think about how many different options our lives can present us with and how many different roads that we can take. But I'll back up all the way to when I started in undergrad, because in undergrad, I was thinking about what I wanted to major in and what that was going to open up for me in the professional world and where I wanted to go. And I had three different directions that were speaking to me for potential majors. First was psychology, then was art history, and the third was economics. And when I was trying to make the decision of how does one even compare these three wildly divergent paths of study, the question that came up for me was, which one of these do I think is going to be the easiest to monetize? Which one gives me the largest income growth potential after graduation? And I bring this up and start here because that particular question, now looking back in hindsight, actually taught me a lot about who I am and how I thought about things at that point and what my worldview was about fulfillment, satisfaction, career, all of these different elements that have shifted and evolved dramatically for me over the course of my life. And it also is probably the way that a lot of people think about that initial question of how do you pick what you want to do and how you want to serve in your career. And so because the question that was coming up was which one of these will allow me to make the most money, I, as you can imagine, decided to forego the psychology and the art history roots and double down on economics. Well, I graduated with my economics degree, went to work at a nonprofit, and felt like it wasn't quite the right fit for me. I was the only person in the office who was doing anything in the digital world. They called me the new media associate because they felt like the digital online modality was still so new and and unique that they didn't really have a space for it in their organization. And when was this, just for a little context? Um, This was back in 2010. Okay. Gotcha. So, so really not that long ago right. in the, in the scope, scope of things, but I, I found that I was attracted to their mission, but that it didn't feel like it was a sustainable fit for me, that there was something about not feeling like I had room to grow, feeling like the organization didn't really value what I brought to the table. And so I thought, okay, well, having dissatisfaction in your first job is probably pretty typical. So let me make a move and try something else. So I was living in Washington, D.C. at this point, and I moved to a communications consulting firm that was mere steps away from the White House and was doing lots of work in grassroots advocacy and activism and 
all sorts of different things with respect to moving the needle on public policy. And I was there for a while and doing communications work, getting a lot of opportunities for growth. I was contributing at a strategic level. I was getting lots of opportunities for international travel, but I still didn't feel good. I didn't feel like I had arrived at something that felt sustainable or felt like home. And I started to feel like this, this millennial Goldilocks of, you know, this one was too cold and too slow. This one is, you know, a lot of movement, but it doesn't quite feel soulful. It doesn't feel fulfilling. It doesn't feel like I'm making a difference in ways that I want to. And so I made another jump. But in the process of making this next jump, which was to a startup where I was hopeful that I would get a lot of opportunities to grow and a lot of opportunities to feel really connected to the mission, I also started wondering about alternate paths for me and why it was so hard to find something that felt like it fit. And I was looking at this, you know, employment forecast for myself over the next decades and thinking to myself, if I'm going to be feeling dissatisfied and like I am negotiating away an important part of what I value and who I am in every job, this is really not what I thought I signed up for in adulthood and becoming a professional. And it was that realization of, man, I don't know why I can't find something that feels fulfilling and satisfying that really led me down the path of diving into career development, career satisfaction, going into both all the, the books and the studies, but also going and getting trainings and certifications, and ultimately leading me in a direction of wanting to help support other people with trying to navigate these questions of how do we find work that feels like it meets your needs, it is not in violation of your values, and that you can still make a living while you're doing. Yeah, man, that's and it's just so, I mean, it's understandable, but it's so cool that you're, this has become sort of your passion now, kind of helping people achieve career clarity, literally figure out what they, what they really want to do. But you've really kind of um, walked the walk, as they say, you've, you've hopped around and tried different things and really kind of grappled even existentially with this, with this question of what do I actually want to do, which I think is just such a, it's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on, because I, I think it's, it's such a big pervasive question that so many people have. It's something I see a lot in my work that comes up a lot. Um, people don't, expect to end up talking about dissatisfaction in their careers in psychotherapy. Um, but it, it's just one of those things that always tends to kind of bubble up. Um, so let's tell me about in your experience, um, working with people who, um, are feeling this way or feeling kind of dissatisfied in their career and, and, and want to move on. What I'm curious what you've learned about kind of what leads to this dilemma in the first place. I mean, you kind of hinted at this in the beginning when you were talking about your primary sort of heuristic for deciding on a, on a career path was like, I think a lot of us, like, how can I make a good living doing it? Um, but what are some other kind of big, maybe subtle, but powerful influences that, that push people on trajectories for their career that, that lead them to be kind of unsatisfied or unhappy in them later on in life? Do you, do you have a sense for like, what, what are some of the big ones there? Well, so Nick, one of the interesting things is that we're never taught a framework for how to think about moving towards satisfaction and fulfillment in any sort of organized, uh, methodical kind of way. And so when it comes to trying to develop that sense of discernment about the career path that would be ideal for you, we're all kind of thrown to the wolves 
and trying to figure it out on our own. And so the different pieces that we each pull from to try to understand what moving forward would feel good for us can vary. I think that as you probably see a lot in your work, early forces shape a lot of the ways that we think about things. So if you had parents who said, you know, in our family, we really will only support you if you are a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, Mm. that's going to shape the way that you're defining career satisfaction and fulfillment because at a certain level, they've they've almost like shifted the ground underneath of you such that you pursuing anything else is in violation of honoring them or it's in violation of the social norms and expectations around love and acceptance within your family unit. I think that in lieu of having strong paternal forces, paternal or maternal forces like that shaping what you're thinking there are also plenty of other societal forces that can come in and play a big part in shaping what could be important to you, what you'd like to aspire for. You know, if you look at what you're consuming in the media and you look at things like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street might be a, a poor example because hopefully you would not be watching that at a young age. <laughs> but when we look at Hollywood depictions of particular career paths or particular options, it can really paint some seductive pictures about what is good what is important, what will allow for you to make money. And some of the other things that are layered on as sort of additional values that you should be thinking about when you're defining your own career fulfillment path. Like say if you were watching the show Entourage, which hopefully again, you weren't doing it too young of an age. uh, That show is about a a high powered agent, right? Who has all this prestige and all this money and all this access to really fancy celebrities and powerful people. And it can be easy to take any piece of media that you interact with in your life and extrapolate out some lessons about what might fulfill you, what might be worth striving for from that. So I think that because we're really never taught about how to define success and fulfillment on our own terms, it's really natural and really normal that we are each feeling like we're sort of groping around in the dark on our own to try to pull together a definition or at least a hypothesis of where happy, healthy work could live for us if those are things that you value. Yeah, and and you've you've sort of got a uh, an answer for this in the in your what you call your career clarity framework, which I think is is wonderfully um, clear and concise and like well laid out. So let's I want to I'm going to dive into that and to get to think about how you help people think about this topic that is so, it's just kind of murky. Like no, no one grows up getting any sort of fixed um, sort of bearings for how to think about this topic much. Um, so can you, uh, I, I want to dive into each piece a little bit more deeply, but just in the beginning, kind of give us an overview of what that framework is that you've kind of like three parts to it. Um, and I think that'll kind of help us um, get our bearings here. Certainly. So When I was going through that Goldilocks phase and really diving into all of the research and the data about career satisfaction, I was reading a lot of studies and a lot of white papers that all had different models for thinking about how to try to find fulfilling work, right? If you have spent much time diving into career development, you've probably come across the Japanese concept of ikigai. Hmm. And 
It's a model that talks about four core driving forces that lead one towards a a sense of a reason to get up in the morning, a sense of purpose and meaning. But when you look at models like that, it can be incredibly difficult to take their principles and then figure out how to apply those to your own life. Like one of the the organizations who I think is doing brilliant work in this space is called 80,000 Hours. And they have done tons of research on meaningful, impactful work. And in their data, one of the factors that they define as being a, a driver towards fulfillment in your work is, and I think this is an exact quote, no major negatives. And, and while that is somewhat helpful at an intellectual level, that feels almost impossible to understand how to how to define, how to either run towards or not run towards. You know, it, it feels so amorphous that it's hard to feel like that's practical and easy to understand for yourself. So in the work that I was doing with clients over the years, I was noticing some trends and themes about the things that would set people on a trajectory to be making a real life upgrade and improvement when they were making a move in their career versus people who were just going from job to job, carrying their baggage with them. And so at a big picture level, there are three core phases that I think anybody needs to go through in order to make a move into a more fulfilling, satisfying job, career, industry, whatever. And the first phase of that is to start with you. Start with your values, start with your non-negotiables, start with your priorities. Because so often the way that we're taught to think about finding help, finding a worthwhile career is Okay, if you're unhappy in your job, go to Indeed.com, go scroll through, see if you find a job description that sounds kind of interesting or that maybe you could do, and then grab your resume and tailor it such that you look like you could do the thing that they want you to do. And the whole focus in that process is on how do I jump when an employer tells me to jump? How do I contort myself so that I can be what they want me to be? And when that is the modality that we are using to move towards new career decisions, it's no wonder that we feel divorced from ourselves, divorced from our values, divorced from a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, because we have inherently put the focus onto them and their needs instead of on you and your needs. So I'm I'm not advocating for people to be in a position where they feel like they should be paid $2 million a year and they should be working one hour a day and they should be able to start that tomorrow. You know, I'm not talking about this in an entitled sense, but I'm talking about this in the sense of before you start looking at any job opportunities out there, let's make sure that you are crystal clear on what you value and what you need in this season of life. What's most important to you? What would be the most joyful for you? What would be the most energizing for you? And identifying what your core values are around work such that if, say, making a certain amount of money is critical and a non-negotiable, that then we can lead with that in the way that you're thinking about your job search in this season of life. But if there's something else that is most critical for you, say, having a great organizational culture fit and a great relationship with your boss or wanting to really grow and expand on certain skills and gifts, that you can lead with that particular factor to then make sure that the ideas or the organizations and opportunities that you're identifying 
are really in alignment with you rather than figuring out how you contort yourself to be in alignment with them. That's that's great. And so I, I think this idea is you're I think I think you're really right that this we all get into this habit of thinking, how can I modify myself? Um, in order to fit the job market and sort of what's out there. And when really, we, it can't at least hurt to start off by just asking, well, what do I actually want? What's important to me? But I love that you kind of take it a, a layer deeper um, in, in a lot of your work and to help, because I think in some ways, may, there are aspects of that question that are relatively straightforward. Like maybe someone knows, I, w- I want to be making six figures a year, or I want to be making at least $50,000 in, in my salary or whatever. Like they, they've got like a number. So maybe that one's pretty specific. But in a way, this can be kind of an intimidating question because it's still pretty big, right? Like, what what are my core values with work and career? God, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's scary just even asking it. Um, but you you've got this this way to kind of break that down even further and, and help people get more specific about it, which I really like. And so can you talk about your what you call the four pillars of fulfillment? Um, these like categories to kind of, or I almost think of it as like buckets to kind of think through. Um, what that question really is, like, what do I actually want out of my career? Absolutely. So when you are going through this first phase of discernment of who am I, what do I want, what do I value, what are my non-negotiables? Again, it's really helpful to have a framework to organize all your thoughts because oftentimes we we can fall into this trap of thinking, you know, well, I want to help people and I want to make enough money to survive and get by. And we come to these these sort of broad, general definitions of things that we're looking for. But what we sometimes forget is that each of those broad categories has a definition that's specific to you. And one person's definition of helping people might be writing the code to be able to power a particular new app that is coming in, in the health tech space. Whereas for another person, that sort of helping might feel like a slow death. For a different person, helping might be actually, I love working one-on-one with children who have developmental delays or developmental challenges to help them find coping skills and find mechanisms to be able to continue to thrive in their situations. And for somebody else, that might sound like a, a slow, painful demise of their happiness and their fulfillment. And their idea of helping people is coming up with big picture strategies to allow for a company to enter a brand new market and be able to share their goods or their services with new people who need them. So a framework that I came up with to help people better break down some of these big categories of needs into their personal and specific definitions is the four pillars of career fulfillment. Because what I was seeing over and over again with clients was that these four factors if you are satisfied in each of the four, will allow for you to have a sustainable, satisfying, longer-term trajectory within a role or within an organization. And uh, Nick, I'm specifying satisfied here on purpose because there's a temptation when you look at this framework to say, oh, let me make sure that I get an A++ in every single one of these pillars. Let me make sure I have a 10 out of 10 and get every single thing taken care of. And while it is possible to get a 10 out of 10 across all of your pillars, it's typically incredibly difficult to job search if you haven't gone through a certain amount of prioritization and making some clear decisions around trade-offs about what's most important to you to seek out. So 
when you're thinking about what's most important to you, what will light you up, what will make you feel fulfilled, energized, motivated, excited, like your work is meaningful and has an impact, here are the four the four buckets as you beautifully phrased it. Bucket number one, pillar number one is identifying your strengths. And so the question behind this pillar is what are the strengths and gifts that I have that are most energizing for me, that are most exciting and enjoyable for me, and both that I would love to keep using, but that I'd also love to keep growing and stretching in. Because one of the core drivers of happiness and fulfillment in our work is getting opportunities to stretch and be challenged and grow. Because if you are doing the same thing that you've always done and you're great at it, but you're not feeling like there's any space for advancement or any space for exploration intellectually, it's easy to stagnate and go from being satisfied into being dissatisfied and bored really quickly. So identifying the things that feel energizing, exciting, joyful, uh, stretchy in a good way is a great way to identify the kinds of traits that you'd like to have in a job moving forward that will feel like it is sustainable and uh, potentially a long-term fit for you. Gotcha. Pillar number two is the magnetic interests pillar. And this pillar, the core question you should be asking yourself is, what are the types of problems or issues or topic areas that I find myself naturally gravitating toward? And I specifically don't talk about the P word passions in this pillar for a reason, because I tend to work with a lot of people who are high-performing, overachievers, they've always done really well, they tend to march up the corporate ladder pretty quickly, and they also tend to have a little hint of perfectionistic pressure that they put on themselves. And when you talk about passions with somebody who has an internal pressure cooker, there can be so many connotations of, I have to find the one thing There's one singular purpose that I was put on the earth to do. I need to find this one passion area and double down on it for the rest of my life. And in my work as a coach, I haven't seen that to be true. That working in your passions doesn't always mean that you're going to be feeling fulfilled. Oftentimes it can suck the passion right out of a passion. And that actually looking at these areas where there's more curiosity and interest about the problems that you can be helping an organization solve on the macro level. So being within a sector or an industry that is interesting to you and feels aligned with your values, and then on the micro level, being in a role where you're solving problems that feel really interesting to you, that that's actually all it takes to feel like you're in a place that can be a long-term fit for you. So that's pillar number two, magnetic interests. Pillar number three is personality fit. And this is one that I think can be a huge driver of dissatisfaction when people are looking at their work situation and thinking to themselves, on paper, this all looks great, but something feels off and I don't know what it is. So when I think about the personality pillar, the core driving question behind this one is, do I feel like I can bring my full self to work? And what that means is, do I feel like the organization has a culture that's in alignment with my values? So they're not asking me to do anything that I think is unethical, immoral, you know, against the way that I see the world in my worldview. 
Do I feel like I have a boss and teammates that respect me, that want to hear more about my voice, more about my opinions and perspective, and want to enable me to do my best work? And am I in a physical environment that also is tailored to my personality? Because you can be in a job that is a fabulous fit for your strengths, a fabulous fit for your magnetic interests, but let's say if you're an introvert and you are plopped into a, a workspace where it is a, a bullpen style, there are tons of rows of desks and everybody's got their headsets and everybody's talking on the phone or talking to one another, and you are wired in such a way that you tend to do your best work when you can be in a quiet space with less stimulation, you're going to feel some level of discontent there and be incredibly frustrated about it because you know everything else seems like it ought to be a good fit. So the personality pillar has ramifications at the sort of structural level, at the relational level, and then at the organizational values level, which can be really important. Mm. And then the final pillar is the lifestyle pillar. And for this one, the question is, how do you want work to fit into your life? And again, like with everything else, this one's got layers. So it's a question of how much time and importance and energy do you want to give to your work, right? Because some people get really wrapped up that work needs to be a huge part of their identity. And that's really important. And that's something that they value. And other people feel like work's just work. I just want to be in a job where I feel like I can come home and then have energy left for my, my family and my interests outside of work. And so identifying which one of those modalities is more you is important. But then it's also the question of, does the work allow for you to be able to afford the lifestyle that you want in terms of compensation, in terms of benefits, and in terms of flexibility? Because especially right now, you know, knowing that the world is going through a complete cosmic shift in terms of the way that we think about markets, we think about the economy, we think about the, the labor market and flexibility that can be afforded by employers, there are more opportunities than ever for work to be more accessible and more flexible and adaptive for different needs in different life situations. So your mission is to go look at each of these four pillars and answer those questions for yourself of, what do I need here? What's most important to me? How do I want to stretch here? What do I value? And then use all the prioritized data points that you pull out of that to then brainstorm what might make sense for your next move. Yeah, so that that's great. I, th I think it's nice to have this kind of like practical, these, these categories or pillars or buckets to kind of help think through that pretty big kind of intimidating question. But let's say, okay, so say I've gone through those and I've, I've kind of looked at those and I've, I've got some pretty good data points. Um, you're... Your next um, kind of the component of the framework is, I, I just love this because I'm, I'm very experimental in the way I think, but it's called testing the idea, right? So how, I, I want to get you to talk about that. And maybe I think in, in your book, you use the example of what you mentioned earlier. You at one point thought about actually going back to school to become um, a therapist or a psychologist. Um, can you talk a little bit about that story and how that has kind of informed this idea of testing a hypothesis for a new career and how important that is? Absolutely. So once you've looked at your four pillars of career fulfillment and you've come up with some ideas of what could be next, 
it's really important. And this is kind of where my economics background comes back into the story (laughs) here, because uh, one of the things that came out of me asking myself that question of, you know, which of these options is going to be the most financially sustainable was the revealed value that I care a lot about risk management. I care a lot about setting yourself up for success and coming up with plan B, plan C, and plan D that are all going to take care of you so that you don't end up overexposed to risk or in a bad situation where something can shift in the world, be it at the economy level, be it at the organization level, or be it at a personal level for you that would then throw your whole life and your career into disarray. So once you come up with ideas of what could fit you next, it's critically important to take the time to slow down and test those ideas before you bet big and go all in on them. And for myself, when I was going through my career discernment journey and I was thinking about going to this education tech startup, one of the reasons that I wanted to go to the startup was because they essentially would give you free graduate school tuition to go do a program. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can go to this place and I can have them pay for me to get my master's in clinical mental health counseling. And then I'll blow this popsicle stand and I'll go be a therapist and it'll be amazing. And So I started out on my journey of creating my application for my my therapy master's program. And there was a question on it that stopped me in my tracks, which was the question of what's your relevant experience that would make you a good therapist, that would make you a good fit into our program? And that question ought to be a question that everybody considers before they make a move of how have I tried this out? How have I even gotten a a similar kind of experience that will then inform whether or not I think this is going to be a strong fit for me? Because we can all have fabulous ideas about things on paper that seem like they could be magical and amazing in our lives. But when we test those ideas and those hypotheses against the reality of what that role looks like, what our life looks like, sometimes how it feels in reality can be wildly different. So in my own story, when I was considering becoming a therapist and needed to get some relevant experience to prove that I would do okay in the graduate program, I sought out an opportunity to volunteer because, you know, there's so many nervous feelings around that you can't get a job unless you already have a job. You can't get experience unless you've already got experience. But if you're willing to be creative and experimental in your thinking, you can find opportunities to try something out that don't have to be big and crazy and expensive. So volunteering was a pathway that I took, and I found an organization called Crisis Text Line, where they give you three months worth of training about how to support individuals who are experiencing crisis. And then you get to do text-based counseling with somebody in a very sort of short, very discreet kind of way to help them move from a space of feeling unresourced or feeling like things are spiraling out of control to feeling like they are, they're cool and they're calm and they have a sense of what they need to do for next steps to continue to move towards safety. And when I went through this program, I just loved the training. I loved the information. I loved the material. I loved the learning. And then when it came time to be supporting my first texters, I 
felt a mix of feelings because I felt like the work was so worthy and so important, but I also felt like it was draining me. And that was really scary to think that, man, I'm doing a a three or four hour shift as a volunteer and I'm feeling drained from this. Do I really think that this could be a 40 hour a week kind of endeavor for me for the next decades of my life? And so by putting myself in the position to actually taste test what it's like to do that work, I was able to get some really helpful course correction data to say, you know what? If you go and do a master's program, you would probably be pretty good at this. You'd probably be okay at it, but it wouldn't feel the way you want to feel. And it helped for me to recalibrate what I was looking for and why, and actually gave me more validation that going into the world of career coaching, career advising might be a better fit for me because it felt much more energizing and it felt much more natural to be engaging in those kinds of conversations. Yeah, that's great. I I love in particular the idea of getting some data on um, energy and like what sorts of things actually give you energy or take energy from you because it's the idea of something might look very appealing, uh, like you said, kind of on paper or, or in your imagination, but it's a very different story when you're in it and you see the effect it has on your, your energy levels in particular. I think that's a really underrated kind of way of looking at um, and getting data about uh, career and, and jobs. Let's, I, I want to transition to kind of your, your final um, piece of the framework, which is sort of executing on the strategy. So can, can you sort of break down for us? Like you've, okay, you, you've kind of done some soul searching and kind of figured out your particular strengths, interests, personality, lifestyle. You've got a good hypothesis about maybe some alternatives of what you want to move into for career. Then you've gone out and tested a little bit. You've got some, you've taste tested, you've got some little bits of real life data about different possibilities. Um, and maybe now you've kind of narrowed it down to one that you think really will be um, a good fit for you. What's, what's sort of the final step? So once you've gotten that data point that can help for you to feel validated and clear and confident about what you want to move into next, be it just asking for something different within your current organization or maybe it is making a complete career and life shift, the process of executing has three core components. Piece number one on making a shift in your work is that you want to have some level of provable experience that you can do the things that you want to go do. So if you're wanting to make a smaller shift within your organization, pulling from past projects that you worked on, pulling from past collaboration or past results and making the case, painting the picture that you could go forward and do the kind of work that you want to do is a fabulous start. But if you're wanting to make a bigger shift, then making sure that you've got an experience from taking a class or doing volunteer work or shadowing or something like that that can prove that you have done your own risk management is really important to a future employer to make sure that you don't seem like too high risk of a hire for them. You don't want to in any way seem like by giving you this opportunity, they're taking on a liability. You want to make sure that they see you as an asset. They see you as something that is likely to deliver even more value than what they expect. So that's piece number one. Piece number two of making a transition is that you need to be really clear on how you tell your story about who you are and what you want to be doing moving forward. Because again, so often the way that we approach job changes and career changes is based in telling a story that is rooted in everything that we've done in the past. 
And oftentimes the stuff that you've done in the past isn't what you want to be doing moving forward. So creating a narrative about who you are as a candidate that is rooted in the future, rooted in what you want to grow into next, rooted in aspiration and ambition can be incredibly helpful in painting the picture for an employer about not just what you have done, but what there's possibility for you to do for them. And piece number three of making a transition successfully is leaning into your relationships. If there's anybody who can vouch for you, who can make a warm introduction or warm connection for you, who can give you advice, who can open a door for you, lean into the vulnerability of asking those people for help and for support. Because every year, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States does a study on how people successfully snag jobs. And every year, without fail, they say that 70% or more of roles that people acquire come from relationships. So it's not saying that you couldn't get a job applying for something totally in the cold, totally in the dark online, but it's saying that you might make the process a lot easier on yourself if you lean into asking for as much help and support as you possibly can first to create some momentum and create some opportunities, especially to get access to things like the non-public job market. Because especially in times like this, where the the labor market is, as my four-year-old nephew would say, cuckoo bananas, <laughs> uh, it's hard to try to figure out how you differentiate yourself and how you stand out on paper, even if you have come up with the most beautiful professional narrative about what you want to do. And when there's so many people competing for the jobs that are listed publicly, organizations aren't always listing all of their roles online. Because when you list one posting and then you're getting inundated with thousands of applicants, it is going to take forever for the HR screener to go through everybody's resume and their cover letter and try to separate the wheat from the chaff. So there are a lot of times where organizations are hesitant to post a role online publicly either because of being inundated or because there are some private things that they need to take care of internally within the organization before something's posted. And if you build a relationship with someone who works at the organization you want to be at or someone who works in the kind of capacity that you would like to move into, they can oftentimes give you some insider intel and some insider tips to open up the doors for the things that aren't publicly posted yet so that you can be essentially skipping the line and getting an opportunity to move straight to the first round interview, as opposed to crossing your fingers and hoping that your application and your resume will be the needle in the haystack that is picked out of the thousand other applicants. Yeah, that's such an important point. Although I, and this kind of transitions us to the the last topic I wanted to ask you about and the little point in your book that I, I just really loved, which was, well, first of all, this can be a little, this probably sounds right to a lot of people. They kind of maybe more and more are realizing that the importance of relationships for careers, but it can be kind of intimidating, right? Like, especially if you're not a particularly gregarious or outgoing or extroverted person, kind of working on building these relationships and, and reaching out to people um, can be tough. But you've got a great little section in your book on sort of the, the relationship between courage and confidence. And I was wondering if you could talk just briefly about about that relationship and the kind of confusion I think a lot of people get into about how those two things work together. Yes, happy to. And you know, something that you just said, Nick, kind of reminded me that when I think about 
the career clarity methodology and the framework and all the different component parts that I've been talking about, I I don't have any illusions that this is like rocket science. I don't have any illusions that this is something that is game changing that nobody's ever talked about before. You know, I hope that people who are listening to this are saying, okay, this actually makes a lot of intuitive sense. This actually sounds a lot like the kinds of things that I have noticed already or that I've seen work for other people. And so what you're what you're cueing in on here with the the confidence and the courage piece of this is that beyond knowing what the the to-dos are, knowing what the tactics are to make a move, there's a whole separate level of considering career change or or job change or career advancement that's an emotional game. And it is emotional management and mastering your own psychology that can go into how you apply these tools and these tactics and then how successful that ends up being for you. And so one of the things that I realized early on in my work is that, you know, we could give you a how-to and a a bullet point list, a checkbox list of things to do, but that there are some emotional road bumps that people encounter along the way that can oftentimes throw them off. And one of the biggest ones tends to be a belief that I'll take action and I will make a shift when I'm confident. You know, I want to I want to be confident before making a shift. And what I have discovered and what I actually saw validated by a cool framework from a guy named Dan Sullivan, who's a business coach, uh, and he actually calls this his 4C framework, is that confidence tends to be a, a byproduct of taking action and not the impetus. And that's important because when we were talking about wanting to be challenged and wanting to grow in your work, if you're already feeling 100% confident, you're probably not doing something that is very challenging or very stretchy for you. It's actually really important to not feel 100% confident in order to give yourself space to grow and space to advance and space to expand. So what I've come to see is true is that if you want to make a change in your work, that you don't start with confidence. You start with courage, which is the willingness to take action despite feeling some fear, which is pretty much the opposite of confidence in a lot of ways. (laughs) So if you start with courage and the commitment to say, you know what? I'm not 100% sure how this is going to turn out, but I think that this is worthy enough to try that I'm willing to potentially navigate some twists and turns on the way to find out. That courage is what opens up all kinds of possibilities in your career and in your life. So when people say, start before you're ready, what they're really saying is tap into some of your inner courageousness and inner bravery and you know, don't do this in such a way that you're setting yourself up to fail. Don't set yourself up that you're going to be uh, disregarding setting up some helpers along the way or some support along the way. But if you're willing to lean into some vulnerability and taking action when you feel a little bit of nervousness or fear around it, typically that's where the biggest insights and the biggest growth opportunities are going to lie. And it's from navigating through those challenges and the growth opportunities that then you emerge on the other side 
feeling confident and feeling capable. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's so important, that kind of relationship between feelings and actions. And we don't always need to feel uh, perfectly confident in order to to take action because really that confidence comes from taking action. I, I think that's so just so key. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for for making the time to come on. Where, where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Well, if you're interested in learning more, I'm actually incredibly excited and and humbled and overwhelmed to be able to to say that I just finished my very first book. It's taking all of these pieces that we were talking about and codifying them into a place where you can learn this framework, you can digest it, you've got questions to help you ponder these ideas in your own life. And so if you're interested at all in getting your hands on the book, you can go to getcareerclarity.com slash book to either pick it up and snag some pre-order bonuses if you act quickly, or be able to pick it up and then get access to all the different tools that will help you to learn how to apply the concepts from the book in your own life. So I'm I'm super proud and a little bit bashful about it over here, but if this sounds like something that resonates with you at all, I'd be honored to get the opportunity to teach and share a little bit more through the book. Yeah, it's and it's great. Uh, Lisa was kind enough to give me a, an early advanced copy, and so I read through it before this interview, and it, it really is just such a... You did a great job, Lisa, I think, of just being so straightforward and kind of practical and clear, which is good because it's about clarity. Uh, but it really is clear and kind of helping people in, in a very useful way kind of think through some of these big intimidating questions when, when you've got to the point of feeling like, um, you know, something's not really sustainable in your in your working career. So anyway, thank you so much again for coming on. Um, and I would really encourage people to, to check out your work um, and your website and then also the book, of course. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.